Hello and welcome to Politics and Science. I'm your host, John Barkhausen. Today we're dipping back into the archives uh, when I had a show back at WGDR in the 1999-2000 time period. And once again, this is Dr. Raymond Pete, and this is a more philosophical show uh, talking about the origins of life, the work of Lamarck, Darwin, Vernadsky appear in the show, so I hope you'll enjoy it. For those who don't know, uh, Dr. Raymond Pete has a PhD in biology, and he has specialized in physiology and endocrinology, and he has extensive knowledge about the history of science and philosophy. You can find out more about Dr. Raymond Pete and also read a lot of his articles. Uh, he has a newsletter that goes out six times a year. It's fascinating, and many of them are published on his website, raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. Uh, it was a call-in show, and the number may be given out in this, I'm not sure, but it's happened more than 10 years ago, so you can't call in. And I should also add that uh, this is a an abridged show. The original show was around an hour and a half long, and I'm going to try to post the entire show uh, at the website. And the website is Radio for All, Radio Numeral 4, A-L-L, dot net. Radio for All dot net. And when you get there, search for politics and science. So how should we start this way? We were thinking of talking about uh, the origins of life. Okay. Um, I think it's necessary at some point to think about the the philosophical uh, things that have fed into controversies about the origin of life um, and national cultural differences. Um, I've uh, studied quite a bit of the Russian tradition, um, starting with Mendeleev, the guy that invented the way of, of ordering the elements in the periodic table, mm -hmm. and uh, he referred to himself as a cosmic realist, and uh, later, um, about a generation younger than Mendeleev, uh, V.I. Vernadsky was, uh, he called himself a biogeochemist, and uh, he was also uh, thought of himself as a cosmic realist, and what they meant by this was that um, you have to think, uh, always back, think of the context of the problem that you're dealing with, and uh, try to think of as many levels of the problem at the same time as you can. And um, What year are we talking um, Mendeleev, for example, um, completed his table in 1869, or uh, in that in that period, his his idea of the period periodicity of the elements. Um, in uh, oh, during the late 1800s, um, uh, Vernadsky was uh, traveling around Europe, uh, talking to people, got to know all the interesting people in Europe, and uh, every time he met someone, he would incorporate their ideas, and uh, 
even literature uh, fed into Vernadsky's way of looking at the world, and um, so that he thought of Tolstoy's brain as as a, a geochemical uh, event. <laughs> and um, Pavlov was another person. Sentinov and Pavlov were they set out to try to explain consciousness, human consciousness, in realistic and physical terms so that they didn't have to leave anything out of the system, didn't, didn't think of a material world without consciousness or a conscious world without material. And uh, so it was a tradition of, of looking at the hidden assumptions behind everything. <clears throat> and from that perspective, um, there are two, one or two attitudes in, in American and German science that I think have limited the way people think about the origin of life. Um, in a way, Pasteur, who, I, I think he's selected by American uh, educators and and science people as as a way to obscure thinking about the origin of life because um, his famous experiment in which he demonstrated that that life didn't arise from de decaying organic matter that his principle was that life comes from life. Um, people seized this who didn't want to accept that life came from uh, non-living matter. They, they wanted to dispose of the idea of the origin of life in the world and say that life came only from life. Mm. So there's kind of a deliberate obscuring uh, principle going on when when pe people try to uh, place Pasteur's thinking at the top and and uh, that sounds like they don't want to discuss it. Yeah, and the same thing happened to Pavlov. They um, this man named Watson, who I doubt even studied with Pavlov because he totally misrepresented what he claimed to have lear learned from Pavlov. Uh, J.P. Watson um, was the founder of behaviorism in America, and he denied the existence of consciousness. And <laughs> even my professors in, in the university psychology department, uh, some of them were still denying consciousness, or at least denying it to children. Um, they said that consciousness was only present in speech, and uh, this this um, picture of Pavlov as studying conditioned reflexes, that it goes back to Watson's misrepresentation of Pavlov, um, and the the, in, the translation of Pavlov's phrase even was deliberately misleading. Um, if you translate it back into Russian, it says something like health resort reflection rather than what Pavlov actually said, which was conditional reflex. 
um, <laughs> meaning that you reflect all the conditions around you. In other words, consciousness was the meaning of Pavlov's term, and uh, consciousness was explicitly defined out of out of his uh, system. And the same sort of uh, attempting to hide the problem has been going on um, in genetics and everything else that uh, genetics has attempted to evade the problem of where life came from in the first place simply by emphasizing that units are passed on which are identical to the units that preceded them. Um, and so when they're forced to recognize change, um, very strange devices have developed, and the idealization of randomness, random change, random mutation, um, for about oh, 80 years or so, um, just totally took over biological genetic thinking that if we're going to have to admit that that life changes and maybe even that life originated from non-life we're going to have to say that it's random because it, it, we don't really want to admit that it happens hmm. and um, so the big controversy between uh, the neo-Darwinists and the Lamarckians um, was this same thing. The Neo-Lamarckians even rewrote uh, Darwin. They took out the, the um, Lamarckian inclinations of Darwin. And um, that's why they call it Neo-Darwinism, because Darwin would be too Lamarckian for their preferences. Maybe for our listeners, you should give a little bit of a uh, brief synopsis of Lamarckian and Darwinism. Yeah, um, Lamarck um, basically said that that life is purposeful, and that the um, intention to do something is part of of the process of physiological adaptation, and that this um, attempt to adapt to an environment um, is is part of what is passed on to the offspring. And Darwin accepted that there were many sources of variation, including the Lamarckian type of, of variation. Um, Darwin didn't say that variation was just by chance. In fact, he, he enumerated a whole bunch of mechanisms that could cause variation. But then after the um, Mendel's silly work with peas, which people have pointed out wasn't even truthful, he uh, fudged his results to make it look more mathematically perfect. Is that right? Uh, after he was resurrected or invented, um, people reinvented uh, Darwin to uh, support their position that that change and evolution are random. And one of the recent manifestations of this strange religion of random changes um, 
evading the thought of, of purpose in the universe. Um, there's been a, a craze about the idea of chaos, and there are really close parallels between the genetics of random change and this idea of chaos. Um, what they're doing is using purely numerical uh, processes to um, argue that you can't predict the future. Um, the whole argument of, of these uh, chaos people is based on numerical sequences and computer events. And then they say, well, particles, atoms, and uh, things in the real world are just like numbers. And that's what the genetics people did. They said um, the particles we're dealing with are just like numbers, and individual particles don't know where they're going, and so they can only change randomly. And what they're doing is reducing everything to the most meaningless unit, in, in one case totally uh, abstract, immaterial numbers, in the other case almost abstract and immaterial entities called genes. Mm. Um, and meanwhile, these other people were um, thinking about the actual physics and chemistry and history and and uh, geology and cosmology and that are operating in everyday life and that that would tend to produce the various phenomena of of um, organisms and organic chemicals and so on um, <clears throat> operan is one of the people um, that is well known in the theory of the origin of life in the 20s and 30s and 40s he was um, talking about the uh, the types of, of physical processes that can create things equivalent to cells and the idea of coacervation or clumping in in complex uh, colloid-like systems um, that find um, organization in a complex way that is stable, um, in allowing complex structures to appear out of what seem to be simple random solutions. Um, the appearance of order um, Probably these people talking about coacervation were um, were the first to um, introduce the idea of self-organization and uh, self-structuring, um, in which entropy actually decreases um, just according to ordinary physical processes. Once you um, add a, a few complexifying ingredients to a solution of, of um, say, starch or oil or protein molecules, um, 
order starts appearing, and the the, um, the strange ideas about entropy only increasing. Um, you have to see that whole history of of denying that entropy can decrease in the universe. You have to see that as part of this philosophy of idealizing randomness and chaos and hmm. the unpredictability of things. Um, Vernadsky was was working along uh, his synthesizing route, um, and in the I think 1922 or 26, he was uh, lecturing on his um, picture of the place of consciousness in in the cosmos and um, showing that the, according to well-recognized principles, consciousness basically is generated by physical forces and uh, he he used the ideas of the biosphere and the noosphere. And um, Teilhard de Chardin happened to be uh, in in Paris, I think it was, where Vernadsky was lecturing, and he um, popularized the idea of the noosphere. But actually, it was it was this uh, cosmic realist philosophy of the biogeochemist that uh, really generated the the central idea of of what the noosphere is in relation to the the biosphere and uh, material world so Chardin, he, he used the word noosphere but he didn't really come up with the final meaning of it um yeah he um he turned it into um, a fairly revolutionary religious idea mm-hmm. um and it it has been very stimulating to a lot of people, but but he he left out the physical principles that explain it. Really, and he left it in a in a very abstract form. Um, one of um, the outcomes of Operan's work and the um, People who worked on coacervation. Um, the American Sidney Fox was um, kind of the fruition of, of some of these particular experiments with um, how physical conditions um, affect the appearance of order out of disorder. Um, I, I should mention that one of the people that Vernadsky um, knew in Paris was um, Henri Le Chatelier, and uh, the famous in, in chemistry, everyone hears about Le Chatelier's principle of of um, the restoration of the disturbed equilibrium. Anything you do to disturb an equilibrium causes the system to adjust in a way that restores equilibrium. Um, and He invented that concept? Le Chatelier did, yes. yes. It, 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 he first phrased it in very complex ways, and over the years he, 
he got it simpler and simpler, and now they state it in very simple but sort of misleading ways in chemistry textbooks. But it's it's a principle that really can be applied anywhere to uh, um, organic physiology, uh, brain processes, social processes, and so on. Um, it's, it's simply an inescapable uh, way of seeing things once once you um, apply it in a few cases. If you have a system and you disturb it by by um, adding energy to it or pressure or um, changing the conditions in any way, the system adjusts and restores a new equilibrium. And um, Vernadsky, thinking uh, cosmologically, seeing the Earth as as something in the universe, um, realized that heat is coming out of the inside of the Earth and that um, the sun is constantly adding energy to the system. And if you're constantly pushing on the system, both from volcanic energy and solar energy, you don't have a closed system. Mm. And in other words, energy is driving the system, disturbing the equilibrium in very uh, powerful ways. And the system is being driven and directed and steered by this constant um, pressure of energy flowing into it. And Vernadsky said um, that the system will adjust in ways that restore equilibrium. And he showed why um, organisms would um, adjust their complexity to use the energy that's available and that this would make bigger and smarter, more intensely uh, metabolizing organisms um, to uh, basically equilibrate the energy that's being added to the system. And um, I've, I've never heard that Sidney Fox was a student of Vernadsky's, but um, he, he, in effect, was because he used uh, Vernadsky's principles and was able to perceive what happened. Um, everyone at, at this time, about 40 years ago, um, everyone then and most of them still are talking about life originating in uh, oh, um, like a, a tepid pond or a warm ocean or or a, an atmosphere sparked by lightning and and uh, various things, um, mm -hmm. um, atmospheric uh, sparks causing organic molecules to fall into um, an ocean in which they accumulate, and then by random events, uh, etc. And uh, Sidney Fox happened, or or, or intended to uh, rethink the question of how proteins 
come into existence when um, the equilibrium, if you have a protein floating in water, is to degrade to um, various um, products such as the individual amino acids that it came from or other uh, small molecules. And so the equilibrium is obviously not favorable for the occurrence of large molecules if they're floating in water. And he put dry amino acids, or almost dry amino acids, deficient in water, put them on hot uh, lava in, in a model of, of volcanic energy being added to organic molecules, and then added a little water and showed that the heat in the absence of water creates protein-like long polymerized molecules. So the equilibrium is absolutely the opposite in the deficiency of water than in a, an excess of water. Hmm. And um, one of my professors, uh, Sidney Bernhard, um, revolutionized cell physiology, but no one seems to have noticed. Um, <laughs> he, he demonstrated that the um, glycolytic enzymes are at a higher concentration in cells than the substrate sugar that they work on. And uh, everyone had been uh, diluting these enzymes in water and then describing the rules of interaction with substrate when there was an excess of substrate and water and a deficiency of enzymes. But he showed that actually there are more enzymes per cubic unit than, than sugar molecules. And the concentration totally changes the equilibrium situation. And um, Sidney Fox demonstrated not only does the relatively dry heat um, create order and protein-like molecules out of free amino acids, but when he added water, the proteins spontaneously formed tiny bacteria-like particles, um, almost all the same size, about the size of a bacterium, <laughs> and um, a, a very orderly <laughs> appearance of cell-like uh, structures. And then over, over um, I guess, about 20 years, he and his students <clears throat> demonstrated that these protein-like molecules have enzyme-like properties, um, catalyze reactions. The, the amino acids polymerize um, in a non-random fashion. It depends on what's present um, in, the, in the growing molecule and in its environment. The growing molecule, in effect, selects certain amino acids to be the next one to add, so it isn't growing in a random fashion. Hmm. And once it has grown, then it has this same selective pressure over um, other reactions, and there's enzyme-like catalytic action in these um, artificially made spontaneous um, 
protein-like molecules. And so he added the precursors of genetic material and showed that these would be catalyzed into chains. And so the uh, you have the reverse situation in which genes come last after you've already created nice, neat little cells that can metabolize, and they can even reproduce themselves really? without the genes in them. So uh, he, he basically originated life. Yeah, yeah. And the um, you put the proteinoid microspheres, he called them, in a solution with amino acids, and they're, the proteins keep going in the growth process because they've concentrated um, a relatively water-free environment in which they do grow and so they assimilate nutrients from the watery environment grow and then when they reach a size at which they are no longer stable they bud or divide and produce new cells as long as there's food available I guess and this, he did this in the 60s, and it was mentioned in my uh, Leninger's biochemistry textbook, 1968 edition, I think it was. And now the, the new so-called Leninger biochemistry book with the same title deleted that most interesting stuff that Leninger had included as an important biochemical principle. Because it doesn't fit their concept. Uh, yeah, apparently. Yeah. Well, I would think that would be uh, what Sidney Fox did would be headline news. <laughs> yeah, it it was for me. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't quite understand uh, your professor Sidney Greenhart. Um, he showed that the the concentration of glycolytic enzymes was higher in cells than the the amount of sugar would warrant, or. No, um, yeah. then the absolute amount of sugar, um, like there, there would be um, more than one enzyme per molecule of sugar, where and and a very deficient relative amount of water, so that the enzymes can um, bind a molecule of sugar as it appears, and then directly hand the product over. To another enzyme, hmm. it isn't a random. I see. Uh, it, the molecules are so close together that the reactants can um, go from one enzyme directly to the other uh, without going back into watery solution, and that uh, drastically alters the equ equilibrium. And if you think of Le Chatelier, the uh, the concentration uh, governs the equilibrium, mm -hmm. and the system adjusts accordingly. So he showed that there was an order to... Uh, yeah, to, yeah no, the, it's not the glycolysis right. was essentially an ordered process where all of the uh, test tube biochemists dissolving cells. Mm -hmm. um, I, before Bernhard had been working on that, I had gone around to all of the chemistry professors um, trying to um, just feel out ways for studying those processes um, without dissolving the cells. And uh, uh, basically the reaction was 
just to laugh and, and get rid of me. Because <laughs> they said, you don't have biochemistry if you don't squash and dilute cells. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it, it seems to me this whole um, uh, uh, divide between the two philosophies is... is it's like the reductionist versus the, um, I don't know what you call them. You have a word for it, I'm sure, the holists or the, somebody who looks at the whole yeah. organism rather than just dividing it into a mechanistic little parts. Yeah. Um, it also seems like science is afraid of sounding religious or something. Um, yeah. Um, did you happen to read my generative energy book? Yeah, I read some of the stuff on Vernadsky. Yeah, um, Fred Hoyle. I quote both Blake and Fred Hoyle right. at, at the top of one of the chapters. And Fred Hoyle uh, says that the cosmos would be... <clears throat> it, it would be hard to avoid thinking of the cosmos as essentially a biological thing, except that people can't stand the thought that the universe itself is, is purposeful and alive. And I really, I wonder why, I mean, it almost seems like science is reacting against religion in that sense, because um, yeah. cause I mean, as far as a lot of people are drawn to religion, and, and that's because it does give a purpose to life. Yeah, that was where Teilhard de Chardin um, made a big contribution to uh, French and American civilization by uh, um, being both a scientist and a religion uh, thinker. Mm -hmm. he, his noosphere <clears throat> uh, got people thinking about the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the meaning of consciousness in the material world and how that relates to spiritual growth and uh, unfortunately, some of the ecologically-minded people have um, replaced even um, the noosphere of Teilhard, but even worse, they've, they've completely reversed the noosphere of Vernadsky with the idea, the Gaia or Gaia hypothesis. Right. Um, which um, it basically it's like the idea of homeostasis versus creation and um, the Gaia hypothesis um, says that the the earth is um, it's sort of like a, a conscious being except it's not going anywhere it's it's trying to maintain itself mm -hmm. and uh, the one of the implications of the um, randomness thinking is that random events have wiped out many species in the past and that that just has to be accepted. The species might take four billion years to evolve, but um, it's okay if they're wiped out by industry or whatever because that's a normal uh, event in history, but when you look at it from the Vernadsky point of view, um, the Earth and the Sun are driving evolution as a system, 
in which the uh, microorganisms, uh, soil organisms, uh, vegetation, and animals, and culture are all being driven forward as a system. If you delete parts of the system, the whole four billion years might go to waste. Right. Uh, where the, the people inclined towards the Gaia hypothesis and the random evolution tend to uh, say whatever happens is okay. So I always thought the Gaia hypothesis was more of a the Earth is a, is, is a being, is an organism, but I felt like the people, the, the proponents of that idea were not accepting of uh, man's you know, basically hurting the organism on which we live and are a part of. Well, they say that the organism is a self-repairing system and that you just, and you don't want to kill it, but that it will repair itself and restore what was, <clears throat> but they don't see it as, as a growing and evolving purposeful I organism. See. Right. And being driven in a specific direction by specific energy. With a specific purpose. Yeah. Right, I see. And, and um, the principles that Vernadsky uh, developed were really extensions of Le Chatelier's principle, but he showed that uh, oh, the migration of atoms and the, um, the use of energy, uh, the um, intensity of metabolism, um, all of these he made as subdivisions of Le Chatelier's principle, um, but it, it basically uh, showed why large-brained, warm-blooded animals had to evolve as the world system evolved. <clears throat> um, at sort of another level, but, but really parallel, um, and probably for similar um, cosmic realist philosophical positions, an astronomer, uh, Nikolai Kozirev, uh, did his um, doctoral dissertation around 1950 on the energy of stars. And he, like, like these other people that, um, who um, pointed out that order uh, tends to appear anytime you have a system which is receiving energy from the outside. <clears throat> um, in just the more abstract concept, <clears throat> Kozirev said, what if we assume that the universe is not necessarily running down and that the within a system entropy does tend only to increase, but there's no such system that we know of, so why should we say that that is, <clears throat> that is the ruling effect of, of entropy? What if we assume that the universe is um, not just running down, that it wasn't created at one moment like, like someone winding up a clock 
only to run down. Mm. And he said, time seems to us to move in one direction, <clears throat> but these people who were working out why the universe seems, seems to be running down incorporated the assumption that time is not real and that that um, time abstractly um, on the physical level is reversible because you have said what if we assume that time physically is is a real um, asymmetric factor in all systems then the mere passage of time distinguishes um, one state of a system from another state <clears throat> in a real physical way <clears throat> and he said what if we apply this using a standard Einsteinian uh, arguments what if we apply this to the energy of stars and say that um, the passage of time <clears throat> it introduces something every moment of time that passes something is being added to the system rather than um, time being as much downhill as uphill and just by that simple assumption that what if time is real um, he, he um, showed that that assumption leads to increasing energy being produced through time by a mass in proportion to how big the mass is. And so he said, okay, now we can um, suppose that time itself is the source of stellar energy. What if we scale that down um, to Jupiter, for example? And uh, he back in the early 1950s before people were measuring the energy and temperature of the planets he, um, he had predicted that, that Jupiter and Neptune would be emitting um, more heat than they receive and that each planet would have internal heat in proportion to its mass and scaling it down to the size of the moon he said that the internal energy of the moon is likely to produce an occasional volcanic eruption or emission of very hot gases. Mm -hmm. And so he trained his uh, spectrometer through a telescope on the dark phases of the moon and recorded various um, hot emissions. <laughs> and um, other people had recorded these, but he... he found them according to the uh, prediction of how much heat should be generated inside the uh, mass simply by his reasoning but because of the passage of time and so his physics I think should be uh, taken into account in thinking about volcanic energy huh. that's very interesting I I'd like to go back to that, but we, uh, is the caller on the line? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a question or a comment? Yeah, it's more in the nature of a question, I guess. Um, I'm curious about 
the idea of consciousness itself and its relationship to the brain and its relationship to matter outside the brain. Mm -hmm. um, as I understand it, the scientific paradigm about consciousness is, is that it's a sort of epiphenomena of physiochemical processes in the brain uh, and that it's more or less self-referential. In other words, what I think or feel doesn't uh, interface with anything outside myself or anyone outside myself, that it's entirely self-referential. Um, there seem to be a lot of problems with this idea, if I've understood it correctly, um, the first of which is, my understanding is somewhat limited about this, so I may be making a fool out of myself, but that no one's been able to locate memory in the brain. The person who did the initial research that showed a relationship between different areas of the brain and uh, the existence of specific memories of either uh, olfactory or auditory or whatever uh, operated on epileptic patients who remain conscious during brain surgery. Yet he came to uh, espouse the idea of interactionism, that mind and brain are two different but interactive structures or forces that uh, thoughts or rather memories weren't stored in the brain per se but existed in some type of field yeah uh, um, when my, my personal history is part of, of where my ideas on this have come from um, before I discovered that thyroid was very important in my metabolism. I was a hypermetabolic individual, and I had, um, oh, probably I would burn 10,000 calories in a day, and I had <clears throat> an electrical field around my body <clears throat> that, that would um, affect physical things like millivolt meters, um, about two feet away from my body, <laughs> and um, so I, I, for years, was very conscious of this um, sometimes really annoying electrical field. I couldn't operate the apparatus. I had to have my lab partner do it because it would go off scale when I got near it, um, and all of this stopped when I took uh, the right amount of thyroid. My metabolism became more... Uh, normal and regulated, but I saw that oxidative metabolism generated this potentially very immense and disturbing field around cells and, and the whole body. And um, this has uh, inclined me more than, than people who haven't had those actual uh, personal experiences with bioelectric fields, it has inclined me to see the importance of bioelectric fields in development 
and physiology. And uh, I still use these, this kind of field thinking. Um, for example, there's um, a field concept of cancer, which um, traditionally the definition of the field has been um, left open, but um, a lot of research shows that it is a, an electromagnetic field or a bioelectric field, at least in part, that um, creates the precancerous and cancerous conditions in a tissue, or that governs the development of an embryo and so on. Yes, and, and that idea has been taken up by people like Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, who came up with a theory uh, which he calls formative causation, that, if I understand it correctly, that uh, information can be shared among members of a specific species. Um, from from Vernadsky's perspective, um, I think the um, uh, supplementary context for that is that um, things are ready to be discovered, and that um, when you change components in the, the system, um, many things are contributing, not just the individual's consciousness, but the preconditions are tending to make that certain behavior probable. So that <clears throat> Bernadsky would emphasize multi-causal um, factors rather than just conscious factors. And I also wondered, you seem to be, have been skirting around something, which is sort of a scientific taboo, and I wondered what you thought of um, the evidence for the so-called inheritance of acquired characteristics. Um, definitely, they, they are a fact, and um, Darwin knew it, Lamarck, um, I'm familiar with Dr. Kammerer, the Viennese yeah, yeah. Uh, biologist. Yeah, his work is a fascinating was, story. His work was real, and uh, um, a lot of people have met similar fates. Um, people uh, slandered Lamarck and uh, took him down because of the implications of of his really empirical physiological approach life, um, people couldn't stand that in 1820 or 30, and so they had to disassemble his reputation. Same thing happened to Kammerer and everyone who, who violates the taboos. Um, <clears throat> Carl Lindgren wrote a book, Cold War in Biology, that it's the best American book on the subject that I know, C.P. Lindgren. What I've been seeing, at least on the level of the popular media and the way the idea of uh, genetics is presented, is a kind of genetic determinism in which uh, the public at large is being led to believe that that, that a, a gene is sort of a individual, uh, almost like an organism itself, you know, the selfish mm -hmm. gene and all that sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, which then 
is responsible for a specific quality or characteristic uh, appearing. And as far as I know, no one's ever proved that genes do anything except organize the synthesis of proteins. Yeah, um, I have, um, because I guess I've been interested in the subject for more than 50 years, and um, so I've noticed the things going on um, and tried to find out where they came from. Um, the, the In some of my newsletters, I'll be talking about uh, related issues, but uh, the motivation for a lot of these ideas around 1910 to 1920 were to um, stop immigration of Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans to the United States. Right. So they uh, created IQ tests and showed that Russians and Jews and uh, the various people that they didn't um, want to immigrate, that 85% of them were feeble-minded. Naturally, they gave the tests in English. <laughs> but um, these tests were um, very explicitly designed for racist um, exclusionary purposes and many of these people have persisted in the universities the bell curve for example a, right. a, a real idiot at Harvard uh, <laughs> was one of the last hangers on and, and these people had great success in getting published in science, the um, leading American science magazine. Um, um, when, when I sent a tiny letter criticizing one of these um, genetic determination of intelligence, I think it was an eight or ten page article, I sent about a two sentence letter they sent me pages of anonymous referees. One of them, the only evidence that was cited for not publishing my little letter critical of the conclusions, I just said the conclusions have nothing whatsoever to do with the text of the article. These pages of, of anonymous referees rejecting my comment the only data cited was from Hitler's um, Racial Hygiene Institute, mm -hmm. and that got me interested in studying what was going on there. And I saw that by studying that period, I saw that Conrad Lorenz was the architect of the racial hygiene, that he created the rationale mm -hmm. based on American <laughs> IQ uh, um, racism, he created the rationale for exterminating inferior people. Conrad Lorenz was a Nazi, and his, I think it was his last book, he repeated exactly the arguments of his 1942 and, and the, the founding papers of um, genocide. He repeated the exact arguments, except he replaced um, exterminate with some slightly milder translation but he uh, never repented from this idea of eliminating genetic inferiority and 
Well, I think the ideology has survived, apparently, but it's been shorn of certain terms. One, for yeah. instance, never hears the word eugenics anymore. Yeah, and but, I went to a, a lecture in the 70s, and all the professors from my biology department were there nodding happily as Gunter Stamp, who was a Jewish refugee from Hitler, as Gunter Stamp presented Conrad Lorenz's arguments for genocide as the ultimate in uh, understanding the brain genetically. <laughs> and uh, all of my professors were there happily agreeing that this was wonderful stuff. And, and when uh, my friend and I pointed out some of the logical irrationalities, such as, as he was saying that uh, a person's life and work are a genetically determined unit, suddenly they said, are you saying that the fact that he was a Nazi had anything to do with the validity of these ideas? And the whole point of the lecture was that every cultural feature is genetically determined. Well, one everything. sort of interesting sidelight on this is that in the... Uh Indian tradition, there were the so-called laws of Manu, which were basically uh, governed uh, the questions of uh, occupation, heredity, and the creation of a caste system uh, based on certain ideas about that. And my understanding was originally the caste system was not hereditary but it was rather simply the recognition that certain people had certain uh, proclivities or uh, natural abilities or interests or capacities and that that they could be best sorted out according to those, you know, in various occupational groups and so forth, but that it was possible to move from one to the other. And then gradually it became ossified into a hereditary system in which... You know, if your father was, uh, you know, a leather worker or something, you would be one. Or if he was a farmer, you would be one. And and there was no mobility and no um, possibility of, uh, uh, of of actually assimilating anything new, so to speak. You know, yes. I um, think I think one of the driving forces of the caste system was the uh, 3,500 years ago the Nordics. Um, the Indo-Europeans invaded and enslaved the dark native people. And uh, I think that was the um, racial caste difference became the, the power that stayed in force and tended to uh, rigidify the, the occupational system. So do you, th do you think this this whole uh, caste system and the emphasis on genetics as being the, the uh, you know, the set in stone basis for your status in life. Um, yeah. Do you um, think that's, people are just justifying survival of the fittest? Um, no, the, the whole idea of survival of the fittest is um, um, basically saying that <laughs> whoever is in power is the fittest right. and whoever is able to say it with most force is the fittest and if you object and they can kill you they're the fittest right. and uh, it 
it basically oh. is tending to create, well, a, a ruling class of inferiors if they keep their status only on the basis of, um, you know, saying things like, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich like me? Uh, pretty soon the, the ruling class becomes uh, degenerate. Yeah. What do you think of the misappropriation? I mean, it seems like the modern, the official ideology, you might call it, of, of the ruling classes in this country is compounded of misinterpretations of Darwin and Adam Smith, basically. Yeah. Uh, and that, uh, you know, I personally don't find the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution intellectually convincing at all myself. Uh, but whenever I bring this up, it, it's roughly, it, it, people look at me as if I suggested that the earth is flat because it constitutes, so to speak, the very pillar of their thought about how the world is organized and operates. Yeah, if you point out, if you start pointing out any of the thousand hidden assumptions or a thousand facts that they are trying to cover up, um, you get to about two or three of them, and then they remove you in some way from the discussion. Right. And, um, you know, and interestingly, Adam Smith's ideas interface with Darwinism very much, I think. And, and they're always misrepresented in economics textbooks. Um, for instance, we all know that Adam Smith believes that self-interest was uh, the appropriate form of uh, being, so to speak, and acting. And that if everyone pursued their own self-interest to the maximal degree, that would result in the maximal degree of happiness for all. But what they leave out is that um, Smith believed also in benevolence as a counterpoint to self-interest, to naked self-interest. Mm -hmm. And that he, he, you could say his idea of benevolence was a kind of social capital you might say, mm -hmm. um, and and you know his comment, for instance, on businessmen is quote they neither are nor ought to be the rulers of mankind unquote, and yet yet his ideas are are promoted. One half of his ideas are promoted; the other half is ignored. Yep. Similarly, Darwin, yeah, you know the it, it isn't just neo Darwin. Darwinism and the um, myth disorders, but it's basically everything in our intellectual history. Um, I've had a habit of reading textbooks in, in many different fields over the years, and they really, 99 plus percent of them are um, ideological distortions. A rewriting of history, leaving out everything interesting or threatening to the um, established system. Um, every field of knowledge has been distorted. Uh, right. Art, uh, literature, um, everything, uh, part of culture that you can think of has its uh, threatening aspects. And in education, it happens that 
the potential uh, meaningfulness that some of these ideas give to life are very exciting to students. And so education has been uh, very powerfully trimmed down to become nothing but um, as far as, as the system can manage it to um, be nothing but an indoctrination in these distortions of Adam Smith, Darwin, um, um, Pavlov, everyone that's treated, if they were good, they have to be distorted. If they were too good, they have to be left out entirely. <laughs> right. For instance, uh, I remember my biology textbook talked a little bit about Darwin and Wallace and contrasted their basically coincident discovery of uh, so-called natural selection. But a radical difference between Darwin and Wallace is that that Wallace simply could not accept the idea of an entirely mechanical evolutionary process driven by you know by randomness or chance. Yeah, Darwin didn't either, though. <laughs> yeah, right. And Wallace actually went to the extent of writing a book, which I had never been able to locate, uh, in which he he tried to work on the idea that there was consciousness and will, and even perhaps this is really going over the edge. Uh, Angelic intelligences, as he calls them, who uh, are gu were guiding the evolutionary unfoldment of uh, people or humans. Um, you know, of course, they wrote him off. <laughs> can't have that. Yeah, can't have that. Um, but what I, I'm turning the discussion a little bit back. Why is there? There seems to be, you know, science developed as a reaction against what I guess you could call religious provincialism or, or metaphysical speculation, uh, you know, by giving people a concrete method by which they could prove or disprove certain phenomena and repeat them and, you know, like that. But then it seems to have turned into an ideology. I mean, science as a method is one thing. Science as an ideology, scientism is something else altogether. Well, my view is that they got one little success, but then they decided to give in to the forces which were also driving the um, the backward um, cultural forces, which at one time were very closely identified with religion, but. Uh, these same forces took over, and most scientists have accepted the fundamental assumptions of the people who used those assumptions for what they called religious purposes. Right. It's a kind of surrogate religion for, for the materialists, you might yeah, say. And, and yeah. how, how it works is by eliminating all of the troubling, complexifying other things and reducing everything to a few principles of random variation, for example, and chance and uh, survival of the so-called fittest. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but my understanding is that, uh, that the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution 
basically posits random mutation and natural selection as the driving factors in the creation and you know the the dominance of certain species and the death of others. And but randomness is based on the idea of infinite time. In other words, given enough time, if you throw bricks at random they will organize themselves into a building. Or if you put a bunch of monkeys in a in a, uh, a room with typewriters, they will eventually write the sun also rises or war and peace or something. Yeah, that's, that's where Vernadsky shows that very quickly species will arise to the limits of the uh, resources available. That evolution is driven in a relatively practically instantaneous way um, there is such a powerful guiding influence um, coming from this energy disturbing the old equilibrium that the variation whatever the um, stimulus might be there might be some random events but the driving environmental force is so powerful that evolution is is relatively fast and directional. Um, and, and one of the puzzling things is, if you posit mutation as as the as the as a one of the principal driving forces, most mutations are regressive. And uh, Sheldrake points out, you might be able to get a, a, a say a a insect. Uh, say a precursor of a fly that that couldn't fly, and it might somehow through genetic mutation produce one wing. But what are the probabilities that it could produce two wings? And then what are the probabilities that those two wings would be functional and actually allow it to fly, etc., etc., etc.? In other words, it seems like a a series of, of improbabilities uh, linked together to explain how we get flies. <laughs> yeah, but if, if you look at it in the context of energy added to the system and look for rules of stability, um, it, it, many different physical principles that are well accepted, um, like hysteresis, the system memory, every system that is is um, undergoing change has a certain memory of the changes it has gone through. Right. Um, and long-range order, um, um, a surface projects um, a sort of field or ordering influence into, uh, for example, the surrounding water or air or vacuum um, and orders um, its environment, uh, Michael Polanyi's adsorption isotherm was, um, came prematurely for Western physics, and so it was ignored, but he showed that surfaces project um, their influence into the environment, and uh, one of my professors um, posted um, electron microscope pictures but he, as far as I know, never published about them. He showed that um, you can lay a plastic membrane, a sheet of plastic, over a crystal, um, 
and in a vacuum evaporate a different chemical on top of the crystal and the first um, accumulation of atoms appears um, ordered it takes on the ordering characteristics of the crystal under the plastic layer showing that uh, the crystal isn't working just atom to atom but is projecting a field through space that orders the way atoms of another substance fall and uh, stick to the to, to the membrane. Wow. So in other words, there paradoxically is some type of consciousness inherent in so-called matter and in life forms. Yeah. Um, the principle that, that explains Polanyi's and uh, uh, um, several other people uh, um, and devised a way of measuring this um, optically, the ordering influence that could be projected through membranes and uh, devised um, a, a lot of interesting techniques that no one is using. Alexander Rothen um, was, um, I think he died about 1980, um, he was applying a lot of these long-range ordering principles. The, the mechanism seems to be partly that um, the electrons on an atom are resonating such that one atom will induce a field in whatever the next atom is, which then induces a field um, off into space. And if these can be ordered rather than going simply away from the surface out in space if the surface reinforces this in the other dimension of horizontally then you can project for amazing distances this ordering field yes a related thing is the discovery several years ago of that heart cells human heart cells uh, which were put in reason in close proximity, but not you know actually touching or whatnot, appeared to influence the physiological uh, processes in, in other cells, even though they weren't physically touching or chemically yeah, it, linked. In the, in the 1930s, the Gurvitches um, were demonstrating this process, but again, they were ridiculed. They would demonstrate that. You could put a quartz window between cells, and they could communicate through that quartz window, which was very similar to what my professor demonstrated with a crystal influencing gas molecules through a plastic membrane. In this case, a thin quartz window would transmit the influence. And I think we're probably circling around the phobia, if you... I don't know what else to call it, uh, about how research is directed and how people understand uh, these uh, processes uh, uh, and linkages to happen because, you know, we don't have, as far as I know, a mechanism that can explain the communication between cells or communication between organisms that are not 
linked in some kind of uh, you know concrete material, chemical, electrical fashion that you can measure and show. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, a there's a missing piece. <laughs> um, yeah, usually the missing piece is just that the the researcher is too dull-minded to to think of measuring what might be relevant. They have in mind that only atom-to-atom forces, um, only mechanical processes are relevant, and so they simply don't measure other conditions, such as the the phase of the moon or the out, outside-the-room conditions. Right. Things that are actually physically affecting the uh, the process that they're measuring. Well, on a similar note, I understand that they recently discovered the presence of magnetite in human brain tissue, uh, which is, of course, a form of iron. I think some people have it and some don't, according to the experiments. Uh, yeah. You can, you can put some people out in the woods, and I think it's about 15% of them know always where north is, and the rest of them have no clue. <laughs> Well, I've sort of rambled on and on, but you can see I'm trying to link some of these ideas and get get, get your feeling about it. Yeah, there, there are two more aspects of this origin of life that I um, wanted to mention before we finish. Um, okay. The submarine vent biologists are, if you link them with Vernadsky and Sidney Fox's work, um, it is very suggestive um, that that the volcanic processes are creating organisms rather than your organisms simply have chosen to live in this incredibly hot environment. Um, and the um, one of Mendeleev's early perceptions was he happened to be melting dissolving um, iron in acid and he noticed the smell of crude petroleum. This happened to be the year that petroleum was discovered or um, started to be mined in Pennsylvania and uh, he sent samples of this oily material to various petroleum uh, chemists uh, I think it was 59 or 60 and they identified it definitely as petroleum from a certain region and uh, it, it was simply the carbon molecules atoms that had been dissolved in the hot iron were catalyzed into what everyone agreed smelled exactly like natural petroleum and Thomas Gold is an American um, basically a, a geologist um, the, he has argued that petroleum is being constantly created by a mechanism such as um, Mendeleev's iron acid reaction. Um, since volcanoes have plenty of 
acid and the earth is rich in iron, um, this Mendeleev reaction would essentially have to produce petroleum in the depths of the earth. And Thomas Gold has pointed out that you can find petroleum uh, miles down in, in uh, granite where it absolutely shouldn't be unless it's being synthesized from the depths of the earth rather than being a, a fossil material. But bacteria, is, is that what he believes? Well, the, the traditional idea is that petroleum is, is a marine biological uh, fossil residue. Right. But uh, the Thomas Gold, Mendeleev, Bernadsky interpretation is that the Earth is generating new petroleum, and these processes, if you think of Sidney Fox's work, um, in which cells are generated by volcanic heat, um, you have um, organic sources of energy, uh, fats and oils, and carbon dioxide being released, and organisms that um, are able to eat carbon dioxide as uh, as a raw material. These um, submarine vent bacteria live on carbon dioxide. Hmm. Um, you have um, many factual um, things that have to be considered in relation to the origin of life. Um, it basically looks increasingly as if um, not only petroleum, but simple organisms are being generated volcanically and emitted into the depths of the earth. That um, that interfaces interestingly with uh, these bion experiments of Dr. Wilhelm Reich in the 1930s, where he claimed to have found an intermediate an intermediate type of uh, life form that was intermediate between matter and biological life forms. Yep. He called bions. Yeah, Sidney Fox's organisms, any high school student can produce uh, little cells that will eat and reproduce. It just takes a few hours in the lab to, to make organisms. So the spontaneous generation idea is not completely mad altogether. <laughs> not at all. I think I think volcanoes are churning out life all the time. Wow. It's wow. amazing. Okay, well I didn't want to monopolize everything. <laughs> You've done very well and I, I went for a long walk and <laughs> you guys have taken care of yourselves. So. <laughs> okay, well I'm gonna hang up now. Okay, thanks Let for somebody else have an opportunity. Thank you very much for calling. Thank you. Yeah. So did you get to say everything you needed to say? Yeah, um, briefly, I think I touched everything that has to be thought about in connection with the origin of life. That was extremely interesting. Um, I, I might mention the work of Lancelot Law White, who wrote um, books on sort of the philosophy of physics and biology. Uh, he was, uh, I think, an important thinker along those lines. Uh, talking about the formative principle as as something that has been overlooked by by the conventional science community. Mm -hmm. Are his books available? Or? Oh, they're in good libraries. They haven't been in print for 
40 years, I guess. Okay. His name is Lancelot Law White? Yeah, W-H-Y-T-E. Okay. A Y-T-E. Well, that was uh, really fascinating, and I want to thank you for coming on again. Okay. And All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Dr. Raymond Pete. Circa 2001 on WGDR in Plainfield, Vermont. You are now listening to WMRW LP Warren, and you're listening to the show Politics and Science. I've been your host, John Barkhausen, and this will be posted on the web- website radio numeral for all dot net, radio the number four and then all dot net, and when you get there, search for Politics and Science. Uh, Raymond Pete has a Ph.D. in biology and has specialized in physiology and endocrinology. And he has a website, raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com, where you'll find many, many extremely interesting articles, fully referenced, that will keep you busy for months to come. Thanks for listening to Politics and Science, and tune in again next week for another edition.